0: Welcome to another public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, Dr Nick Snashell, National Trust Archaeologist for Avebury, reveals how learning to read the evidence from prehistoric stoneworking, alongside that from tombs, enclosures and burial monuments, means we can start to understand the life of the Neolithic people. What I'm going to talk about this evening, as Philip quite rightly says, is mainly the life rather than the death aspect um, of the Neolithic Cotswolds. The majority of what I'm going to discuss this evening is based on um, the core of the work, on some of my PhD work, um, which took place two or three years ago, um, in which I looked at um, the potential for using something called lithic scatters, um, which are the remains of flint tool working, um, for telling us more about how people actually lived their lives during the Neolithic. And I did it by means of a case study in the Neolithic Cotswolds, But first, maybe I realise people don't necessarily have a background in the the Neolithic or the Neolithic in in the Cotswolds generally, so a little bit of an introduction. Now, the Neolithic in Britain starts in approximately 4000 BC and continues until around about 2200 BC. I say around about because that date can sometimes be regarded as a bit of a movable feast because it relies on the introduction um, of bronze working. And there's a debate amongst archaeologists whether the very first occurrence of bronze in about 2500 should be taken as the start of the early Bronze Age, which signals the end of the Neolithic, or whether we should look at the period in time when there's a more general use of bronze. So that's why it changes a little. Now, the Neolithic is the period during which we first see the introduction of domesticated crops and animals into these islands. Um, Now, what that essentially means is we see the introduction of uh, a variety of different forms of wheat and of barley. We also see the introduction of domesticated cattle and domesticated pigs and domesticated goats and sheep. We do have wild cattle in these these islands before that period, um, but their bone assemblages are very distinctive. They're much larger than the cattle that are introduced. So we see domesticates introduced in all forms. It also signals the introduction of ceramics. Prior to this period, um, the start of the Neolithic, there are no ceramics in these islands whatsoever. So the native hunter-gatherers of the, hunter-gatherers of the what we call the Mesolithic or the, um, the Middle um, Stone Age period who precede the Neolithic people in these islands um, actually would have used organic materials, things like birch bark containers, leather bags, that kind of thing, in which to, to store and carry things around. So ceramics are a bit of a breakthrough. And also, very importantly, for what we're going to talk about this evening... We see changes in the way in which stone tools are produced. Uh, One thing that's important to bear in mind in this is that we are looking not at a major immigration of peoples. We're not looking at large-scale invasions as was maybe thought 40 years or so ago. We're looking largely at changes in technology and changes in a way of life that were taken on board by what had been the native hunter-gatherers of these islands. That's important to understand because the stone tool working that we see has similarities to the previous period, to the hunter-gatherers of the later Mesolithic, but it also has differences that come, apart, uh, that cut, cut, come about only with the introduction of agriculture. <coughs> some, of the, uh, some of you may be familiar with this. Does anybody recognize it? Yes, not very far from here. It's Stony Littleton. Um, this is um, typical of a type of monument known as a chambered tomb. In this case, a transepted, what's known as a transepted chambered tomb. Um, and you will immediately recognize, if you know where it is, that this isn't in the Cotswolds, but it's indicative of the sorts of things that we see for the very first time in the Neolithic period, and that's the construction of monuments. Prior to the Neolithic, which we all think of as the introduction of domesticates, the introduction of farming, the introduction of ceramics, there were no built monuments. There were no, not in this country, there were no tombs. There were no, we don't, stone circles come from the Neolithic period. I can't emphasize how important these sorts of monuments, and this is another one you might recognize. This one's Stanton Drew. So, yes, uh, that's another Somerset example. Um, I can't emphasise what a difference the construction of these monuments made and the way in which it changed people's perceptions of lives and the landscapes around them. I can't emphasise that enough. Um, If you can imagine a world in which there had been very few built structures, apart from a very few ephemeral, um, quite small-scale huts during the Mesolithic that people were living in, there were Moving around the landscape on a regular regular basis, the sort of thing we think of in the Mesolithic um, are the sort of structures that you sometimes hear (coughs) referred to as um, as benders. If you if you get sort of a a camping style almost, sort of thin, withered, small, round structures, the sort of thing that could be taken from place to place with people as they move about the landscape, and then suddenly in the Neolithic we see the construction of these sort of stone structures. It's a totally different mindset an entirely different way of life. However, the Neolithic, as fantastic as it is and I'm biased, um, the Neolithic is a bit problematic for archaeologists because we see something of a domination in the material record of death and ritual, and it's for the very reasons that we've just been talking about that we've got so many of these wonderful, upstanding monuments, whether it's chambered tombs, stone circles, henge monuments, and we'll come back to henge monuments a little later. Um, They have, for many years, really dominated the work that archaeologists have done in terms of understanding the Neolithic. Um, If we... Look at that. There's a number of reasons for that. This is another tomb. Does anybody recognize this one? This one is on the Cotswolds. This one is Bella Snap, up above Winchcombe. Um, the tombs, fantastic, upstanding, stone-built structures. The enclosures, again, another form of monument that we have, and these are the ground plans of a number of enclosures, um, causeway enclosures are sometimes called called causeways because as you'll be able to see if you look at this example up here they consist of a when you look at them in ground plan a number of concentric circles formed by uh, normally ditches sometimes with banks behind them which have interruptions in them or causeways you sometimes also hear them referred to as interrupted ditch enclosures these, like the other, uh, the other monuments, the tombs that we've just been looking at, date to the earlier Neolithic period, the period between about 4,000 and 3,000 BC. But again, although not as easy to see in the landscape as tombs, they're still upstanding monuments. They're very, uh, very visual, very visible in the archaeological record. Henge monuments. I really am biased about this. This is Avebury. Um, a henge monument, for those of you that might be wondering who haven't come across the term before, is really an archaeological term that simply means um, a circular or subcircular structure, normally Neolithic but sometimes dating to the um, early Bronze Age, which has a bank, which has an internal ditch. So it's the opposite, for instance, in its construction of things like Iron Age hill forts. They are not defensive in character. They seem to have served um, a whole range of functions, but focusing largely on the ritual and the ceremonial. So again, we have emphasis in the upstanding archaeological record of ritual, ceremonial, um, and in some cases, some of these also are associated with death and mortuary practice. And then we have stone circles. Now, I hope everybody knows this one. Okay. Now, <coughs> Stonehenge, probably one of the most iconic monuments um, in the world, certainly prehistoric monuments. Stone circles, again, are a very visible record, in this case, of largely later Neolithic date, at least the stone portions of these monuments are. Um, which focus on the death and ritual aspects of life. So you get this picture of all of the things that we're familiar with about the Neolithic and that archaeologists concentrate on are to do with death and ritual. That's because they are either made of, they're either made of stone or consist of large, normally quite large earthworks, and they're upstanding and they're readily identifiable. Now, what that means is that from the very earliest of times... When you look at antiquarians, like, for instance, people like William Stookley in the 18th century, um, from the earliest times, antiquarians and subsequently archaeologists have been able to easily identify them. They are, if you like, what can only be regarded as sexy in archaeological terms. They're out there, they're big, they're attractive, they're easy to get hold of, um, and therefore they have been the subject of study for a very long time. The other half of the problem is this bit. It's this bit that we do all of the time. It's how we live, how we live our everyday lives, where we reside. And For the Neolithic, that is a huge problem. We know very little about it. We have a number of domestic structures or what we believe are domestic structures. And you'll hear archaeologists hedging it around all the time with, this may possibly be domestic, it might be ritual, it's possibly this, it's possibly that. The structure that you see here is, in fact, um, from Scotland, from a place called Balbridi, Um And these are the foundation trenches of what was a split timber structure. So this is a rectangular building. You can see it's probably um, about 11 or 12 metres in length, about 8 metres across. It appears to have had a suspended floor, hence the rather odd arrangement of post holes here. So it had a raised floor. Um, It has what appeared to be two doorways. It was built of uh, split timbers and it had a large amount of carbonised grain and ceramics associated with it. We think this, this therefore, is domestic in nature. We do have a number of structures like this in the British Isles. Most of them do not exist in anywhere near as good a ground plan form as this does. Um, In comparison to the numbers of chambered tombs we have, we have very few structures. Now, to give you an idea... In the whole of the Cotswolds, we probably know of, depending on on whose whose interpretations you take, somewhere between five and seven um, rectangular structures that are probably domestic in nature from the Neolithic period. From that same area in chambered tombs that we know of that survive, we have some hundreds of chambered tombs. So you can see, again, there's a bit of an imbalance, and there are reasons for that. That's because the nature of the beast, particularly in areas where you have soft geologies, is that structures like this one, for instance, are not made of stone. There are a few in Scotland, such as the, the very famous Skara Brae, for instance, um, or indeed Barnhouse up in Orkney, um, that are made of stone, but the majority of them are timber structures, which means you're just left with these negative impressions, foundation trenches or post holes in the ground. It means you've got to be lucky to find them. Um, so they're quite difficult to find, unlike the Chamber tombs. <coughs> the other type of evidence that can be used to look at how people are leading their everyday lives what they're doing, where in the landscape, comes from what we call lithic scatters. Now, these are the remains of stone working. Lithic comes from the word lithos. Um, It comes from the Greek, which simply means stone. So when we're looking at a lithic scatter, all we're looking at are the um, assembled remains of activity which involves either the use of or manufacture of stone tools um, somewhere out there, in the landscape. People used stone tools for many millions of years. During the Neolithic, people had stone tools, but clearly not until the early Bronze Age do we have any metal. Now, what that means is that the tools that people used in daily life would either have been organic or ceramic or made of stone um, or bone or antler. Now, that makes lithics very important because... Lithics were a major major source of tools, and importantly, different bits of the lithic process, bits of the way in which people made and used their um, stone tools, can be identified in different parts of the landscape. And we can look at how that is done in just a moment. The plus point with these is that they survive very well. Unlike timber structures, they don't rot So if they were there in antiquity, unless somebody's removed them, they're still there. There are lots of them. In comparison to other forms of um, Mesolithic and Neolithic materials, our museums are brimful, and I do mean brimful, having looked at some tens of thousands of pieces of the wretched things over the course of the last several years. um, They are brimful of the evidence of stoneworking that has been collected both by modern excavation, by field walking, and also by antiquarian collectors. There are vicars all over Britain who spent. Um, I sometimes wonder whether they ever went to church. <laughs> um, there are people like the Reverend Kendall in the Avebury landscape, for instance, um, or, or, um, or Royce up in the Cotswolds who seem to have done little else but go out and collect lithics from the landscape. Um, That is good in that we have an excellent source of material. However, it brings brings its own difficulties. What it means is that these things have been collected by a variety of different methods. Collected in a number of different ways. Sometimes the recording is quite good sometimes we have everything recorded to a 10-metre square in a nice modern um, field-walked assemblage. We can tell you about distributions and what was found where. But sometimes, if people like Kendall or Royce have collected them, we know only that they were found in a particular parish. So you can see that the, the context is a bit variable there. So how best can we get information out of there? It's, it's a really good source of um, information, potentially, but it's hard work. So, how do we go about using lithics, um, in this case in the the Cotswolds, to attempt to try and work out what people were doing where? Well, the first thing we do is we look at the typology of the lithics. Now, typology simply means the study of type. It's the study of shape and style, and it's something that's used by archaeologists in all periods, um, whether you're studying Roman material, medieval material, um, industrial material or indeed prehistoric material. and Essentially, what it means is that we can build up a series of types over a period of time so that we can say that different styles and types are associated with particular periods. It's what we call a relative dating technique because on its own, it doesn't tell us whether something is Neolithic or Bronze Age. It can simply tell us whether something comes before or after something else. It's only because we now have modern scientific dating dating techniques like radiocarbon dating, for instance, that we can ascribe approximate dates to typologies. So now, for instance, if we look at these artifacts in front of us, the artifacts we see on the left are um, representations of what are known as leaf-shaped arrowheads, which are earlier Neolithic in date, whereas if we look at the arrowheads on the right-hand side, we see... Um, representations of what are known as oblique arrowheads, which are later Neolithic in date. So we would immediately, if we found these in a lithic scatter of some sort or an excavated assemblage, know that these are associated with the earlier Neolithic, whereas we're looking at the later Neolithic with these ones. So it's a very simple way. It can give you chronology, and it can also, to some extent, tell you about function, because after all, we know these are arrowheads. So what other methods can we use to characterise the lithics? This is where things start to get slightly more complicated. Archaeologists are very fond of using um, long terms, and in in lithics in particular, we borrow a lot from the French. um, And the reason for that is that um, some of the the best lithic specialists in the world um, have come from France. Some of that is to do with the fact that they had fantastic paleolithic cave sites so, if you like, the science of working out the technology of lithics um, has been going a very long time um, in France, which means we borrow words from them. So, the chain opératoire, or the chain of operation, if you want to put it into English, it's much, much easier to understand, uses um, an analysis of the technology of stoneworking to work out what is going on where on a site or across a landscape. So, to explain how that works, You start by asking yourself, are we looking at a whole artifact or a part of an artifact? Now, you can make stone tools in a number of ways. There are two basic basic methods. You can use um, a method whereby you take a large lump or nodule, normally in this area of flint, but in other areas, uh, it might be of chert or other materials, obsidian in the Mediterranean, and you can knock pieces off it And the pieces, the flakes that are removed, are the waste. And what's in the middle will become the artifact. And you use that method if you're making things like mace heads or axes, big bulky items. In contrast, the other method that is used um, is something that's called core working, where the bit in the middle ends up as a waste product. And what you're trying to produce are flakes, the bits that are removed of particular, stage, uh, of particular shapes, which you can then go on to modify and make into other tools. So when you're making smaller tools, this is the method you use. If we look at the diagram on the right here, showing the uh, chain operatoire for what's known as blade core working, and to explain to you what a blade is, a blade, if we see here, is simply a flake that has been removed from a lump of flint. We start with this nodule of flint up here, and it has pieces struck off of it, long pieces in this case. A blade is something that is at least twice as long as it is wide. Now, you don't have to remember all this. Don't worry. No tests later. Um, But the important thing from the point of view of understanding how this helps us understand about residents is the fact that blades um, heavily dominate stone-working assemblages from the Mesolithic and the earlier Neolithic. Whereas by the time we get to the later Neolithic and the early Bronze Age and succeeding periods, we get much more chunky, squashed little flakes. And this is all to do with what they're trying to produce from it. So we can ask ourselves... If we're understanding, if we start off with one of these big lumps and bits get knocked off of it, be they blades or flakes, and you can see down here, uh, as the core is worked more and more, it becomes reduced and smaller and smaller in size, so you can tell um, when you've got cores that have only just started to be worked and when you've got cores like this one that have had quite a lot of removals and you've got tiny little bladelets coming off of it now. Um, you can tell whether you're looking at something to the initial stages of working, or whether it's a long way down the line and people are making the most of what they've got, if you like. And then you can go on and you can adapt those things. So, for instance, here, we see the production of what's called a back-to-blade Somebody's modified that by what we call retouch, taking little removals off of it, additional removals, to make another type of tool. So, depending on whether you find this bit, or the core, or a flake or blade, or a retouched flake or blade, a tool of some kind, you can tell what bit of the process you've got. And at some sites, you will find what we call debitage dominates, and debitage is simply the word that means the waste products, so the cores and the blades. At other sites, you might only find cores, and people have removed the blades and the flakes, and they've removed the tools. And that starts, to. once you think about this, and if you find particular sites which have, say, lots of cores and they have lots of this rough stuff on the outside that we call cortex, the sort of... It's like the peel around the outside of a nodule of flint. If you've seen flint in the, the, the Wessex fields in the Chalklands, you'll see that rough stuff around the outside. Lots of that on it and lots of cores, very few, few tools. You will know that you have a site where there's production going on, but somebody's taking the artefacts elsewhere. So somebody's not living there. It's a manufacturing site. Whereas you might go to another site... And what you will find at that site is quite the reverse. You'll find only artifacts and no evidence that there's manufacture going on at all. Then you can start to ask yourself questions or maybe even answer questions about where people are living and what they're doing in the landscape. And does that vary through time? Now, the next element of this, and excuse the awful photo of me, what you're really looking at down here is not me. Ignore that. This is a this is a this is a, a flint core. It's one of the um, the sorts of blade cores that we were looking at just a moment ago. It's white in this particular instance because it's it's got patination on it. If flint has been in contact with um, either limestone or chalk for a long period of time after it's flaked, then it absorbs the calcium carbonate and you get this white patina on it. If heaven for forfend somebody should break that in two, you'd find it was black or grey or brown, whatever the natural colour of the flint was inside it. Um, but what I'm doing here is I'm measuring this and these flakes that you see down here with a dial caliper, very simple little dial caliper, um, because, um, and this is the really boring bit um, of doing lithic analysis, because um, studies have shown that by measuring both the length of And the breadth and indeed the width of flakes and blades that have been removed from these cores, um, there is a difference in the average of those that are removed, whether you're looking at Mesolithic assemblages, hunter gatherer assemblages, early Neolithic assemblages, and later Neolithic assemblages. Basically, what happens over time is that the style of working changes. In the hunter gatherer periods, people are (coughs) concentrating on producing lovely, long, carefully controlled blades the sort of thing we've just looked at a moment ago. As you move on down into the earlier Neolithic, people start to concentrate instead on producing their flakes, but their squatter. And then as you go into the later Neolithic and early Bronze Age, they're knocking them off any old how, and they tend to be quite chunky and quite small, because what they're trying to do then is not produce nice blades to make simple but beautifully crafted tools. They knock off a flake, and then they take smaller removals off of it to make wonderful um, arrowheads and various sorts of scrapes and so forth. So they're interested in lots of additional working afterwards. Now, what that means is that we can do something called chronometric analysis. And all chronometric analysis means is if we measure all of the blades and flakes in those three dimensions from any given flint working assemblage, and then we take the average of them We will be able to work out, uh, in terms of the length to breadth to width ratios, so looking at the ratios, whether we're looking at a hunter-gatherer assemblage, an early Neolithic assemblage, or a later Neolithic or early Bronze Age assemblage. Now, As you can see, you can now begin to see why people don't do a lot of this, because it takes a while. And like me, you have to be a bit of a nerd. Um, Now, the next thing we're going to look at is the landscape. Now, when I started to conduct this um, study, what I wanted to do was to take a landscape um, and to look at different topographical zones and different what we might call monumental zones and see how the different types of activities which were evidenced by the different sorts of lithic scatters um, that had been found, fitted into that pattern, were the differences in different topographical areas and where different monuments were, in where and how people were using these things through time. So what I did was I was looking at the Cotswolds. Um, You'll see this is... I've kind of mixed my old and my new here. We've got kilometres and we've got feet, but this is the um, 400-foot line here. I looked really um, largely at the Gloucestershire and Oxfordshire Cotswolds. I missed off the the bit right at the bottom, didn't didn't look a lot at that, Um, largely because the collections aren't of, of such good quality down there. And I had to have some way of restricting it. There were tens of thousands of pieces of flint out there. Now, what I did was I took sample squares based on ordnance survey squares. These are 10-kilometer squares. You'll see there's one here um, centered at the southern end, one up around Sirencester, SO91 up here, just below uh, Cheltenham. Then we've got one in the middle of the Cotswolds, one on the dip slope of the Cotswolds, Mm -hmm. one on the north dip slope, and one right up here, top left-hand corner on the northern Scarp. Now, it was quite important to me that I, I carefully selected areas that had both differences in topography and differences um, in the monuments. And that was so that I could try and explore whether why, what was going on in those areas, if it was different, was different because there were different monuments and they were doing different things there because of that, or whether it was related to the associations people have with particular areas, or whether it was a combination of those. So... Um, I'm sure you're probably as familiar with this as I am, but um, this is the the mass of the limestone massif of the Cotswolds. Out here to the west, we have the Severn Vale and then the uplands of the Forest of Dean further over. Um, Down here, over on this side, we have the Upper Thames Valley with the Thames River gravels, and running down from these sorts of areas, we have tributaries tributaries running down into the River Thames on the dip slope of the Cotswolds, this being the, the Scarp Slope along here. And then in the south, down here, we move down um, gradually to the Wessex Chalklands. So it's, um, this is a more gentle slope down on this side, the southern dip slope. Now, in terms of um, the monuments, I looked um, at a whole series of different areas and they were selected, just to give you a quick run-through, I'm not going to go through this in enormous detail, but to give you some idea, SO91, that's this one up here, um, and this sits on the Scarp slope. This one has two of those causewayed enclosures, the ones with the concentric rings that we talked about with the gaps in them, which are early Neolithic in date. The Cotswold, the Scarp edge, runs just along here. There are a whole series of the chambered tombs, in this area, and all of the individual little dots are related to lithic assemblages. So they're all stoneworking assemblages that have been recovered either by antiquarians or by more formal modern field walking or by excavation. And one of the unusual things about this was I combined all of those different types of evidence. Um, Some of the other areas, to give you an idea of the differences in the Cotswolds, SPO3 up here, that's it. One lithic assemblage, one chambered tomb. There is only one chambered tomb in that area. The lithic assemblage from um, that area had only seven items in it. So it doesn't appear to be an area in which there's um, there's a huge concentration of Neolithic material. But the one thing to say is in some cases, this may be slightly blinded by the fact that there may not have been a lot of research done there. So there's a bit of skewing there. We have to recognise that as well. Um, just to flick through some of the other areas. This one up here, we'll come back to later. This is uh, number 55, is a Henge Monument, and that's the Henge Monument at Condicott, which sits in the centre of the upland mas- massif, SP12, on what you might call the sort of High Plains Plateau across the middle of the Cotswolds. And you'll see there's a whole cluster of chambered tombs around it. It's a... Even in the earlier period, in the early Neolithic, it's a very important area, and with just one causewayed enclosure close by. What is not on any of these plans although, um, are round barrows, and there's a reason for that. Although I went from the Mesolithic period into the early Bronze Age to see whether there's any variation between what's happening in those periods and the Neolithic, essentially, um, in the Cotswolds there's a complicating factor in that some of the Bronze Age round barrows may, in fact, be earlier Neolithic in date because in the Cotswolds we have something known as beehive or rotunda graves. And they are earlier Neolithic in date. And if you're just simply looking at them on the ground, you can't always tell which you've got. So I removed those from the study so as not to confuse the matter because they wouldn't give us a true picture. SP 22... So this one over here on the dip slope. Again, this time we've got two chambered tombs um, and one dip slope enclosure, and I wanted to include that so that there was a causewayed enclosure which was looking towards the um, upper Thames gravels, if you like, rather than looking across to the seven Vale. SP23, again, only one assemblage, but importantly a chambered tomb and a stone circle, the only stone circle in the study area, um, and that's the Rollwright stones. And we have good quality lithic material collected from there. And then ST77, right down here at the bottom, um, and there's a whole series of assemblages here, as we'll see later on. This proved to be quite important during the Mesolithic period, price to the Neolithic, and three chambered tombs. No cause enclosures here. And no henge monuments. And then SP00, this one down here, the area um, just above Sirencester, where we've got on the dip slope, but an area that has chambered tombs but no causewayed enclosures. So we could see what the difference was between areas with and without the enclosures. So what were the results? Well, essentially, if we start in the later Mesolithic. In the southern area, the one we've just looked at right down here, in the later Mesolithic, there is a huge residential centre at a place called Tog Hill. Um, Very large, blade-dominated assemblage, and interestingly, uh, one of the things I looked at was where the material was coming from. You can do this by um, visually sourcing material as either what we call derived material or chalk flint. Chalk flint has very good thick cortex on it, that rind, whereas derived material from something like riverine sources or um, gravel sources has very thin cortex or peel, if you like, around the outside. Um, the material from here in the later Mesolithic is chalk flint dominated very heavily. They're getting their materials from somewhere down here to the south in the chalklands with just a tiny little bit of derived flint, which presumably is coming in from somewhere over here on the river gravel. So they do have contact with areas over here, but most of their contact is with areas to the south. And that's important when you're thinking that in the later Mesolithic, people are still moving around an awful lot. Um, So they're probably moving towards the Chalkland and back up to the base of the uplands rather than um, moving largely from this area to the river gravels. Now, in contrast, in the northern and central areas, so up here, during the later Mesolithic, the hunter-gatherers are only making occasional stays up here in this square here there's an assemb- a very small assemblage at the Rollwright Stones, um, which was collected as part of a f- big field-walking assemblage. Dates to much earlier than the, um, the Rollwrights. And it's a retooling site. It's the sort of place where people were going out hunting. And somebody stopped along the way, and they've made new tools to retool and go up, up go following the deer into the uplands, essentially. And then there are... If we look over in SO91, just here, and SP00 over here in these sort of middle areas, there are a series of temporary base camps. So these are the sorts of places where, having set out from somewhere like Tog Hill in the south, these people would have moved up to the uplands, stayed maybe for a few days or a few weeks on a hunting trip, whilst they went... Uh, and there are structures, for instance, at Crickley Hill, four small circular structures. Um, there's evidence of repeated visits in the lithic material from Rencombe at SP00 here. And then they're making little forays to places like that one we talked about up at the Rollrights in hunting trips. So you get this picture of what people are doing during the Mesolithic. During the earlier Neolithic, we see a different picture we see a number of different types of structure that are evidenced from excavations that we know about. Um, There's one quite famous example at Ascot under Witchwood, uh, which is shortly... Well, it's in the process of publication now or is just being published. Um, We have a site at Sales Lot, which is actually, some of you may know, is a chambered tomb site. Um, But beneath the cairn at Sales Lot when Mrs. O'Neill excavated it many years ago now, um, you'll see this is the cairn over the top, but sealed beneath it and in the area of the forecourt where she excavated are the remains of parts of a wooden structure, the rest of it presumably being off under here, with a hearth underneath it as well. So we've got some wooden structures. This is probably the best quality modern excavation of a chambered, too, that has, has happened. Um, this comes from, it was excavated in the 80s, a publication in the 1990s by Alan Saville, now of the Museum of Scotland. Um, and this, again, beneath the cairn, which was completely excavated by Alan, we have um, a midden site, very large dump of material waste, um, a hearth, and we've also got a number of, features which appear to relate to post holes and some sort of very ephemeral structure. This again looks like a residential site that we know of from excavation. Um, This appears to have happened in um, a woodland clearing. We know this from the snail evidence, the molluscan evidence we have there. Snails are very picky about where they live, um, and they can tell us an awful lot about the environment. Now, in addition... We have earlier Neolithic enclosures, and you'll recognise this from the picture at the beginning. This is Crickley Hill up on the Cotswold Scarp, one of the two enclosures within this particular 10-kilometre square. Crickley is here, and there's another one just over here. You can see it. You can almost... almost, Well, you can. You can wave across the way. You'd have been able to see the rivals um, from one enclosure to the other. Now, Crickley is extremely important in that along with places like Hambledon Hill and Windmill Hill. It's one of the best understood enclosures from the earlier Neolithic period. Um, This is uh, a site plan of the features associated with the earlier Neolithic enclosures there. Now, it consists of um, concentric banks, but what you're looking at here is the interior. Around here is where the, um, the banks and ditches ran, and Along here, you see these thin green lines here, ran a fence line. And this double fence line is a pathway that leads all the way up here to this stone platform on which a structure was placed. On this structure, we know there was a small stone wattle and daub construction which was hemmed around by wattle fencing There's a small stone orthostat that stood here and excavation showed that entrance um, was strictly controlled in as far as there was a lot of wear on this side of the stone and none whatsoever on this, which tends to suggest that the reason this stone is here is to tell people to move in that direction. They went in this way and out that way. What seems to have happened is that people came in left offerings or gave offerings to a priest or shaman, we don't know, placed them here. There's a small stone altar The Material was burnt here, placed in this structure temporarily, and then all of the material was periodically scraped out and placed in this odd sort of lug-like thing over here. Also on this site, we have some other rectangular structures which also appear to be domestic in nature. So we've got other domestic structures So, what does the stone working evidence tell us is happening at these sites, at these enclosures? Well, there's another example over here, known from air photography over at East Leach. This is on the other side of the Cotswolds. Um, These are places where people appear to have been coming together to produce tools. So, they're not just using them there. they're, They're actually producing them. And what seems to be happening is that most of those tools are then being removed to other sites. Just a few of them stay at the enclosures. We know this because at sites like Peak Camp and Crickley Hill, for instance, um, the evidence shows us there is lots of that debitage we talked about, lots of that waste, lots of cores, but there are are a handful of tools that were retained there. there There's so much debitage that the other material must have been removed to go elsewhere. Now, on the dip slope, on that eastern side towards East Leech and across that way towards the the gravels, um, the raw materials that they brought in are brought in semi-prepared. So they've gotten their materials from the river gravels. They knock a few bits off the outside to make them a bit lighter. Then they take them up to the enclosures, and there they manufacture lots of tools. Whereas on the scarp edge enclosures, like Crickley and Peat Camp what they do is they're taking raw materials in in a largely unaltered state. So they're taking big nodules of flint up there without having first quartered them and removed the rough bits from the outside. And on the scarp and, indeed, on the southern dip slope, what we find is that the material um, they have there is chalk-dominated but with a little bit of derived material as well. So their connections are both with the river gravels but mainly with the Chalklands, whereas on the dip slope, it's although there's some chalk material there, it mainly comes from the river gravels. So the folks that are living on the western side and at the south look mainly south towards the Chalklands to get their raw materials. That's where their associations are, presumably where their exchange links are, where their social links are, whereas the people who live on the dip slope they have their connections with the river gravels and the area of the Upper Thames Valley. Now, what's happening around some of the monuments? Around the chambered tombs, people are somewhat surprisingly not living or working close to them. I say surprisingly because we might think that it's not desirable to live near a tomb, Um, but archaeologists for a long time have suggested that these were places where people were coming together and staying for a while. and That doesn't appear to be the case at all. They're coming there for ceremonials and to place their dead within them, but they're not staying for any length of time. However, at at a slight remove from these places, and here's... One example at a place called Crippets Barrow Field. This is just to the north of Crickley Hill, about a mile along the Scarp Slope, um, where a field walking survey was carried out some, ooh, probably 15 years ago now. Um, what's happening is that there's nobody living here, but at a slight remove, so maybe about a half a mile away or more, you have what we can call secondary locales that are being used away from the enclosure sites, where you find a whole range of tools, the sorts of things you would associate with occupation, everyday living, as opposed to the sorts of manufacturing you see at the enclosures. You see small-scale core working, so people are using their tools there, and they're also knocking up a few extra bits as they go along, a bit of sort of repair work. Um, And the material is being bought in partly prepared, even in the Scarp Slope. So it's being prepared at the enclosure sites and then removed to these places where people are living for a lot of the year. And the raw material seems to be, again, dictated by proximity to particular places. So if they're in the south, there's lots of chalk flint. If they're in the east, there's lots of gravel flint. But it's very important to note there's always a small component of the other type of flint material in all of the assemblages. So if you're in the south, it's mainly chalk, but there's a bit of gravels. If you're in the east, it's mainly gravels, but there's a bit of chalk material, which means that these are active choices people are making because there are a few folk who are either exchanging in or going to the other places. It's that they prefer or have their connections with these, not that they couldn't get there or they couldn't get the material. In the later Neolithic and the early Bronze Age, what's happening is, is actually quite exciting in some of these areas. In the earlier Neolithic, we saw secondary locales that we've just talked about being used. and the, Here's two of those enclosure sites, and one of the secondary locales is up here at Birdlip, number 40. It's Quite a big site um, in the earlier Neolithic. But in the later Neolithic and the early Bronze Age, these are being reused, all of the non-enclosure sites, on quite a large scale, there's lots of recycling of material. They're actually mining the material that's there from some hundreds of years before that's been left as waste material and the old tools that people have previously left there. So recycling's not new. On the scarp slope enclosures, there's an active avoidance of the enclosures like Peak Camp and Crickley as residential locations and manufacturing sites. Now, that's really quite interesting because people for a long time have said enclosures, tombs of all sorts, you get this idea of ritual landscapes that build up over time, which undoubtedly is true when you look at particular landscapes like, say, Avebury, um, places around Stanton Drew, places like Thornborough, for instance, in the north of England. But here, in the Cotswolds, you've got people actively avoiding previous monumental sites what that means is they're seeing these things and presumably remembering them as important places we don't know, maybe they can't quite make sense of what they were, maybe they think of them as the, the houses of the spirits and that you shouldn't go near them, we don't know but they're avoiding them, they're not going anywhere near them on the dip slope, in contrast people do go to them but they don't live there, they only recycle the materials, it's non non-residential and then we see a series of new later Neolithic and early Bronze Age sites that are dominated by single activities with other small-scale tasks. Now, these appear to be residential sites where people are specializing in something or simple single-activity sites where people are going off into the landscape to do something. Round henges like Condicott, number 55 up here, and Sadly, this is all the remains of Condicott today. So you can see this low sort of ditch, and it's just the remains of the bank there. We know it was built in a woodland clearing. It was periodically cleaned out, and we can tell that again from the snail evidence, the molluscan evidence. And the lithics tell us, the lithics found in the henge, there's a lot of tools but very little waste. Now, what that's really telling us is that we've got people coming there. They're not really making lots of stuff, but they are bringing tools with them to use on the site. So it's not a residential site, and it's not a manufacture site. It's a specialist site, which is what you would expect of a ceremonial centre. Interestingly, however, despite the fact that there is this small assemblage from the henge with this special type of use... And despite the fact that, along with these chambered tombs, there is the largest concentration of round barrows anywhere in the Cotswolds in this 10-kilometre square. As I said, we haven't showed them because of the confusion with rotundas elsewhere. Despite that, there are no big, no major late Neolithic or early Bronze Age assemblages in this whole area. The assemblages there are are very small, and they appear to be associated with the construction and use of the round barrows. So it's the sort of thing people used when they were making the cairns for the round burrows and digging out um, the grave pits. If we look instead away from the High Plains Massif, where the Henge monuments are, and towards the dip slope again in the later Neolithic and the early Bronze Age, what we see in the area of the Royal Wright stones is we see core working is happening. People are coming to the site and they are working materials they are manufacturing and producing stone tools in this case we see a very low tool to waste ratio so this is opposite to what we saw at the henge monument a moment ago at Condicott. here what people are doing is producing lots of tools and then they are taking some of the tools away with them so this is a manufacture site so Although they're of a similar period, the late Neolithic and early Bronze Age, um, what's happening at the Henge Monument, a ceremonial monument, is very different from what's happening at the ceremonial monument of the Roll rites. used for two distinctly different types of activity. One is used um, in a purely ceremonial way. The other may be used in a ceremonial way, but it's a place in which um, stone tools are also being manufactured. The tools are being removed elsewhere presumably to be used as some of those secondary locales we talked about, the more specialized residential sites during the period. So what we can say is that the stone circle, in essence, is non-residential. No surprise there, then. So you can see that by combining chronometric analysis, technology, typology, together with a study of the landscape, and with excavated assemblages, you can get something that is more than the sum of its parts. It takes quite a time to do. Um, I find it quite absorbing. Not everybody does. Um, But I think one of the things that this study has demonstrated is that this can be done in other areas. And when you compare what we find in the Cotswolds to what happens in other areas, it's actually very different from what we see in other areas. What we're beginning to learn is that we have many different regional Neolithics, many different Mesolithic periods. The Cotswolds is different to Wessex. Wessex is different to Southeast England, and it's all different to Orkney or North Yorkshire. And that's something that's taken us a long time to learn because archaeologists have been very fond of writing great synthetic treatments when they draw everything together, not least because it means you can get the best examples of everything, but what you then get is a very fuzzy picture of what's going on. It's a very blurred vision of the Neolithic. Whereas if you concentrate, first of all, in looking at things at a regional level, what you get is quite a detailed picture, and you can begin to work out the patterns of people's lives. So I hope I've introduced you just to a a little snippet of what life might have been like during earlier prehistory in the Cotswolds. Thank you very much.